Indeed, we will sing through the ages of our Savior's love for us. A love that we can't even plumb the depths of. And yet we pray, as Paul taught us to, that we might know the height, the depth, and the length, and the breadth of the love of Christ. The more that we know of that love, the more secure we are in Him, the more our own hearts know of the salvation that has been accomplished through Christ. Well, as we come to the Word of God this morning, let's bow and ask for God's grace upon us. Bow with me. Our God and Father, we thank you for the privilege we have to worship you. That you are the great and awesome God who is holy. You are separate from sin. You are other than us. And on our own, Father, our sin rises to the heavens and prohibits fellowship and communion with you. But we are thankful for the gospel this morning that we are able to come in Christ and therefore our worship is able to be offered. And not only offered, but accepted. That you delight to hear the praises of your people. People that have been transformed and changed by the Spirit. And so we ask this morning as we continue our worship, looking to hear from you directly as you speak to us through your word, may you please open blind eyes. May you please humble proud hearts. And may you cause us to submit our wills to yours. And Father, whatever work and whatever change you bring about in us, we will give you the praise and the glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, indeed, we all know and feel deep down inside of us that we live in a broken world. We don't have to look long and hard to be reminded of that fact. Headlines are coming at us every day, and you can, uh, you can barely turn anywhere in society without seeing that brokenness without seeing the pain, the suffering, the devastation that is around us. People are fraught with disease and sickness. Death is the destiny of all mankind. Evil and violence rage in every nation on earth. There is no nation or neighborhood that is exempt from the sin of man. We see lies and deception and harmful speech that plague humanity. Of course, every worldview, whatever religion and whatever way that you, uh, your faith commitments are, you have to make sense of this world. You have to understand where did this brokenness come from? Why is the world not pristine? Why don't people do good to other people? Why is it that people do bad things to one another? I would contend that only the Christian worldview can truly answer those questions. Of course, other worldviews attempt to answer them, but they don't align with reality. They fail their test drive, you might say. A secular evolutionary worldview can't explain why murder is wrong. Of course, uh, someone who holds to that view would say that murder is wrong, and they would argue for such a thing. But in that belief system, 
the faith commitments that an evolutionary worldview has, it's survival of the fittest. Each person turned against each other. We are simply animals who carry out our instincts. And that instinct is to dominate others in order to survive. Therefore, in an evolutionary, secular worldview, why is murder wrong if I'm simply trying to get ahead of everybody else? The Christian worldview, in contrast, clearly teaches that evil, sin, and brokenness are a result of the fall of man in the garden. God created mankind perfect and holy, and yet they rebelled against God. Adam and Eve, our first parents, and therefore they plunged all of humanity and all of creation into the prison of sin and decay and suffering. Brokenness in our world, as the Bible teaches, is a result of sin. Now, of course, it's easy, as we've already noted, to see brokenness out in our world around us. We only need to turn on the news, open up our news apps, and we get regular reminders of that. But when we turn off the TV and we put down our phones, we know and feel inside of us that the brokenness extends even into our own lives. We are not as we should be. We're broken physically. Our bodies are wasting away as joints and organs don't operate as they should. We feel the pain of injury, of deformity or disability. Whether at birth or by accident, our bodies can be deformed or disabled. There is the devastation of disease, the disappointment of surgeries gone wrong. Our bodies feel the pain of brokenness in this world. But we're also broken psychologically. We're worrisome. We're anxious. We're fearful. We're insecure about who we are, about our place in this world, about the purpose of our lives. And we have these unexplained fears. We have disordered desires. And we seek to find ways to distract us from this brokenness. We're also broken relationally. We hurt one another with our words, saying things we wish we didn't. We destroy friendships and even harm those whom we say we love. Our anger taints our interactions, whether it explodes out of us or simmers inside of us. We all have emotional scars from the pain inflicted on us by others. We feel this brokenness. But most significant of all, we're broken spiritually. Our hearts, the flesh inside of us, as John Calvin once said, are idol factories. We are cranking out a conveyor belt of idols. We find every excuse we can to avoid obeying God's law. We want to please other people, please ourselves. We want to be our own gods, living for our every whim and desire. And we can sense our hearts wandering away from the living God and toward the worldly enticements of sex, money, and power. We still find our flesh delighting in evil at times. And it's into all this brokenness 
that Jesus, the Son of God, entered. He took on the frailty of human flesh and so he could walk among us and could accomplish our salvation. The gospel accounts of Jesus' life give us wonderful vignettes of our Savior caring for people and healing the brokenness of people. And today we're going to see one of those in Luke chapter 13. And so I invite you to turn with me there, if you're not there already, to Luke chapter 13. Last week we began this chapter and we saw how Jesus called the people of his day to make a decision about himself. That the time was short. That they didn't have all day. They didn't have their whole lives in order to be able to make a decision. That their accountability was coming and that they would need to make a stand for Christ. Either repent of their sins and believe in him or reject him and find destruction. They would perish, Jesus said. But then he highlighted that God is being patient with them. Yes, they need to repent of their sins, but listen, God is being patient with you. He's waiting. He could bring judgment on you right now, but he's not. He's given you more time. Don't despise that patience. Well, the account that we come to today in Luke chapter 13, verses 10 through 17 gives further evidence that this nation that Jesus is preaching to is not bending their will to Christ. That they remained steadfast and hardened in their rebellion. That particularly the leaders are not looking to submit to Christ. They don't believe that they have anything to repent of. In fact, they believe Jesus is in the wrong and he's the one that needs to change. They still do not correctly interpret the times. You notice from a couple weeks ago, Jesus indicted them for knowing how to interpret the weather, but not knowing how to interpret their present day circumstances, i.e. that God's Messiah was in their midst and they should repent and believe. This account that we'll read this morning is further evidence they're not interpreting their times accurately. They're missing it. They could not see the, the living God was working through Jesus Christ, and therefore they rejected him. And so, this narrative mixes together the compassion and power of Jesus with the hard-heartedness of Israel. Follow along as I read our text this morning, Luke chapter 13, verses 10 through 17. Now he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And behold, there was a woman who had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your disability. And he laid his hands on her. And immediately she was made straight and she glorified God. But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, there are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed, and not on the Sabbath day. And the Lord answered him, You hypocrites! Does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his, don his ox or donkey, his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? And ought not this woman, 
a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? As he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame, and all the people rejoiced at all the glorious things that were done by him. Thus ends the reading of God's word. May God impress these truths upon our hearts this morning. Now from this text, I want to draw your attention to four attributes of Jesus. Four attributes of Jesus that should cause us to be drawn all the more to our Savior. These stories in the Gospels remind us of who our Savior is, who Jesus is, and we need to be reminded again and again that we not be held back from Jesus, but that we move towards him. The first attribute that, of Jesus revealed in this text is, number one, Jesus sees our brokenness. Jesus sees our brokenness, and we'll see this in verses 10 through the first part of verse 12. Verse 10 gives us the generic setting of the story. Look at it with me. It says, now he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. He's teaching in a synagogue. We don't know which one, and it's frankly not important to the story. Luke, again, is giving this story, this account, in order to reinforce his point that the nation has missed the boat, that they are not seeing and interpreting the times accurately, that they're failing to produce fruit like the fig tree mentioned in the passage just previous. Now, this scene is familiar if you've been following us in Luke. Chapter 4, we saw Jesus in the synagogue teaching. Chapter 6, we saw Two different stories where Jesus was uh, doing things on the Sabbath that the religious leaders didn't like. And here in this text, those two themes come together, the synagogue and the Sabbath. In fact, this is the last recorded time in Jesus' earthly ministry where we have him in a synagogue. There's much teaching and healing that takes place in the synagogues in the early parts of his ministry, but this is the last one that's recorded for us. Now, verse 11 is written in order to jump out to the auditory listener. The ESV and the LSB retain the word behold in the text, which is helpful. Verse 11, and behold. This was meant to be given as an auditory cue marker to the people listening that, listen up, there's something important here. And what does Luke want us to behold? What does he want us to see? It's a woman who has a disabling spirit for 18 years, who was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. We're to see a woman who is in deep suffering. We're to see in the midst of this teaching episode that there is a woman who is in deep pain and has experienced suffering not just for a short time, but for a long time. Amazingly, even though she has had this disability, this pain, this weakness for 18 years, she here shows up in the 18th year of her malady to come to the worship of God and to hear the word of God at the synagogue. Despite her disability, she is still showing up. This is not someone with a minor problem. She was bent over and unable to straighten, her, straighten herself. Now, this we learn later in verse 16 was 
somewhat caused by Satan. Jesus says that this woman, Satan had bound for 18 years. And here in verse 11, it says it's a disabling spirit or a spirit of disability. Some sort of unclean or evil spirit that is afflicting this woman. Now, I don't believe this is an example of demon possession. In other words, that the demon has possessed her, as we've seen in other gospel accounts, that then end up controlling the person. This seems to be a case of demon oppression, where they are afflicting this woman, somewhat similar to Job in the Old Testament. You remember Job went to the Lord and asked for permission to afflict Job and his family, and he wreaked havoc in Job's life and upon Job's physical body. There wasn't possession, there was only oppression. I think that's what's going on here as well. And so this woman has had somewhat of a satanically inspired, debilitating condition. And yet here, she's making her way to hear the word of God and to worship with her fellow Jews. Of all the people that could have found an excuse for staying home, it could have been her. But here she is making her way because it was important to be at the synagogue. Now verse 12 tells us that Jesus saw her. Do you note that? Look at verse 12. When Jesus saw her, he called her over. You can picture the scene. Jesus is seated at the front of the synagogue. He's teaching. Teachers in that day sat down. He's teaching. The people are listening. He's been going on for some time. We don't know how long. When in through the door comes this woman who's hobbled over, bent over double. He notices this woman who comes in the door. I would imagine that she's coming in, trying to be as quiet as possible. Probably took her quite, it's quite the effort in order to get to the synagogue, to come from her home, but she was determined to come. And, and she came in the door not wanting to distract, not wanting to draw any attention to herself, but also to her condition. She doesn't want to, no doubt, disturb the teaching as well. And so she begins shuffling to her seat. And yet Jesus doesn't allow her to go in unnoticed. He sees her. And he, in his infinite wisdom, knew this was a woman that he wanted to help. And it's here that I believe Jesus sees what everyone else doesn't. This woman, you could imagine, probably frequented this synagogue often. That these people said, oh, that's just her who's coming again, shuffling in late, and they overlook her and they simply stay focused on the teaching. But Jesus sees something more. He doesn't just see a woman who's arrived late. He doesn't just see a woman who is bent over and suffering. He sees a woman who is oppressed. He sees a woman who is suffering and bearing the pain of her suffering. And I believe it is in this simple recognition of what we see Jesus doing here that he sees this woman that we are reminded of Jesus' loving work 
even in our own lives. Jesus sees what no one else sees. He sees the pain that we feel in our hearts. He sees the burdens that we carry on our minds. He knows the injustice that we've suffered that no one else knows. He knows the wrongs that we've endured and the pains that come with that. Friends, the gospel of Jesus Christ reminds us that Jesus sees our pain and he knows it. He knows it. Nothing escapes his attention. You can't slip in the door without him taking notice of you. He sees what no one else sees. No doubt there are many of you sitting here today that are carrying burdens that no one else knows. Pains that you've experienced maybe even this week or maybe over decades. Pains that cut you deeply. I want you to see Jesus Christ today and he's looking at you and he sees those scars. He sees those open wounds and he knows them. They do not escape his notice. Do not believe the lie that your Savior is too big and grand that he cannot notice you and notice your pain. Because just as he noticed this woman, he notices us as well. He knows what you're going through. Be comforted to know that Jesus sees your suffering. You know, this woman's disability in one sense was seen by everybody. Again, she was probably well known in the community as, as that woman, right? You can't look at her without noticing the suffering that she was under. And yet, no doubt after 18 years, people overlooked her. They just go, oh, that's her again. It's a helpful reminder that this can often be the case of those who experience some sort of disability in some sort. It may be noticed at the beginning, but it can be neglected and forgotten and overlooked as time goes on. But Jesus has an eye towards all, as he did towards this woman and her disability. And I believe this is a sweet reminder that all those who suffer in some way from a diminished capacity, whether physical or mental, the Lord Jesus takes notice of them. He does not just walk on by. He is intimately acquainted with all their ways and with all their suffering. Now, before we leave this point this morning, I want to make one further observation that was upon my heart as I studied this passage this week. You know, in Jesus' day, women were not treated with all that much respect. They were often overlooked, just the fact that they were women. Men did not go out of their way to acknowledge them, to speak with them. Rabbis considered it a waste of time to teach women. And so, this woman was probably ignored like most women in her day, but even more so because of her condition. And yet, she should have been cared for all the more because of her condition. In contrast to this, Jesus didn't follow that typical line. Jesus took notice of women in his ministry. He spoke to them. He taught them. 
You remember that the first people that, that witnessed his resurrection were women. A very punctuated statement to say that he, there's great value in women and in their testimony. Jesus moved to help women as he does in this account. Where other people overlooked women, especially oppressed women, Jesus took notice. Some of you may know that in recent days, the Southern Baptist Convention, our nation's largest evangelical denomination, has been rocked by a report of sexual abuse within the denomination. A third party investigation revealed that the leadership of the convention ignored reports of abuse of women in SBC churches and even stonewalled those who spoke up. They ignored women who were oppressed and abused by those who should have taken care of them. And friends, I believe that the example of Jesus here in this text is yet another statement that that sort of behavior is not like Jesus. Jesus takes notice of the downcast and the hurting. In particular, as he does here, he takes notice of women who are oppressed and suffering. Therefore, we, the church and its leaders, should follow the example of Christ and should have compassion on those who are mistreated or abused. Now, this is not to specifically particularly slam the SBC this morning, but simply to say that the church needs to make sure we get this right and that we should value women, we should care for women, and we should protect them as Christ did. I pray that that would be the case here at Foothill Bible Church as we follow Christ. So this passage this morning first reminds us tells us that Jesus sees our brokenness. But there's a second attribute of Jesus that we see, and that is that Jesus cures our brokenness. Jesus cures our brokenness. Let's pick up the account in the middle of verse 12. Uh, start at verse 12. It says, When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your disability. Now notice Jesus doesn't just notice her and see her, but his sight prompts action. He decides to do something. He takes the initiative. Notice that this woman is not just coming to Jesus asking for healing. No, Jesus is going to her. He moves toward her. She's simply being faithful, coming to the synagogue, and Jesus pays attention to her and decides to act on her behalf. And first it says he calls out to her. He calls her over. Jesus summons her to come. Can you imagine what this woman might have felt? She slipped in the back, probably late, shuffling to her seat. And the teacher calls her to come to the front. I'm sure that there was a bit of fear that welled up in her heart as she thought, oh no, the very thing I've been trying to avoid, the attention of this whole room, is now happening. There may have been a degree of embarrassment. But Jesus calls her over. 
She shuffles, bent over, over to him. And Jesus speaks to her. He says, woman, you are freed from your disability. Now in our day, for us to call a woman, address her as woman, sounds a little strange, maybe a little rude. And we need to take note of that culturally. In their, their day, this was not a rude or abrupt term of address. This would have been somewhat like ma'am or madame. It's, it would be a term of respect to address a woman this way. And so he declares what he's about to do. You are going to be freed from your disability. And then he promptly acts. He, look at verse 13. He laid his hands on her and immediately she was made straight and she glorified God. He placed his hands on her and as he does that, she is instantly straightened up to stand upright, something she has not done for 18 long years. Right there before everyone's eyes so that everyone in the synagogue could witness, it could not be disputed, this woman went from being hunched over to standing straight up. And this woman then immediately praises God. Why would she glorify God? Why, why would she receive that healing and then praise God? Because unlike the religious leaders of the day, she interpreted the times accurately. She realized who Jesus was and what he was doing, that he was God's representative, that God's power was working through him. And therefore, as Jesus heals her, she praises God because God's power is what is working through Jesus. And so she gave glory to God. She believed it right away. Jesus moves to heal her. And in this, we have a sweet reminder that Jesus came to this earth to deal with the brokenness and the sin of this world. In this miracle, we're reminded that he came to make us whole, to heal us completely. But what does this mean exactly? What does it mean that Jesus came to heal our brokenness? We need to be accurate and, and careful on this. First, we need to say that the plan of redemption, God's plan to save humanity, to save a group out of mankind, is a plan to redeem us completely, both body and soul. His plan of redemption is not just a spiritual mission. It is not just to save us spiritually and to cast our bodies aside. No, God created us in the original creation, both body and soul, and he declared that it was very good. And so in the new creation, through Christ, we will receive new and resurrected bodies because bodies and physicality are good in God's creation. God is going to redeem us, body and soul. He will make all things new. But we need to understand the sequence of God's plan. As was made clear through the ministry of Jesus, as recorded in the Gospels on his first coming, Jesus came and had the power, through his miracles, he displayed that he had the power to bring about that full redemption. And he need, needed to be trusted for that. But as his, his ministry and life came to an end in that first coming, we learn that he came to pay for sin through his death and resurrection. 
With his second coming, he will complete what he began and he will resurrect us to new life with new bodies. So in other words, his first coming, he came to save our souls. His second coming, he's going to come to save our bodies. It's a little bit simplistic, but it's the basic framework. We are saved spiritually through his death and resurrection now in Christ, and we are guaranteed of that full final redemption one day that will come when he returns. But now, during this day, redemption is, full redemption is not here. And so creation groans until that day. It groans under the weight of sin and suffering. Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verse 23, and not only the creation that groans, he says, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. We wait for that final day when pain and death will be no more. It is coming, friends. We have the first fruits. We have the down payment in the Spirit. It is with us. God gave it to us so that we would not doubt that promise. In this life, we can know that our souls are saved eternally and securely, and we're promised the ultimate redemption one day, but we wait for that. Now, God can and does heal in our present day. Let me say that again. God can and does heal in our present day through his providence and to whom he, he desires. But it seems to be more selective. And even if he causes a, a healing in some way, it's not ultimately complete. Somebody might be cured of cancer, but then they're ultimately going to still die one day. It's not an ultimate redemption, an ultimate healing. You, all of us must succumb to death. And so we wait that future day when 1 Corinthians 15 tells us, we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. But today, we can know that Jesus heals the brokenness spiritually inside of us. At the moment of conversion, at the moment of salvation, when we first believed, we are made new. There is a renewal that takes place inside of us. Paul says in Titus chapter 3, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. When we come to Christ, we're renewed, we're regenerated, we're born again. And so Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. There is newness in us. We once were dead in our trespasses and sins, but God made us alive together in Christ. And because we are alive with Christ, get this, friends, we are now dead to sin. Sin has no dominion over us. This is part of the healing of the brokenness that's in us. God is transforming us that we are dead to sin. Romans chapter 6, verse 6, Paul says, We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. 
And then verse 11, a few verses later, he says, so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Friends, Jesus cures our brokenness. He heals us spiritually as the gospel begins its transformation within us. He sets us free from our sin. He gives us new life. But the transformation doesn't stop there. Paul says in Ephesians 4.23 that we're able to be renewed in the spirit of our minds. Our minds are able to be changed. Romans 12.2, he says that we're be, to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. In other words, we're not trapped in our old ways of thinking. Our brains and our minds do not have to stay in this broken down state that we can continue to be renewed and think differently about our world, about ourselves, about life, about future and eternity. We can be renewed and think differently. And so we have the promise all throughout the scriptures that Jesus can and does heal our brokenness. Some of that curing happens in this life. Some of it awaits Christ's second coming when we get new bodies at the resurrection. But until then, we follow the words of Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16. So we do not lose heart, he says. Though the outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. There is healing that is happening. There is transformation that is taking place. Praise God that we have a Savior who heals, who cures, who transforms those of us who are bent over and deformed by sin. Those of us who have suffered as a result of others' sin. And Jesus' healing here in Luke 13 reminds us of this great truth. But let's move on to the third attribute of Jesus that's revealed in this text for us. And that is that Jesus is moved by our brokenness. He's moved by our brokenness. He sees it, he cures it, and his heart is moved by it. We see this in verses 14 through 16. Verse 14 introduces us to another character. It says the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath. The ruler of the synagogue was a layman there in the synagogue who was responsible for the order of worship, responsible for how things functioned and went on there in the synagogue. And so if there's a disruption, if there's something happening, it makes sense that he would say something, he would speak up. You know, he's kind of the meticulous guy in the corner with the clipboard and making sure that everyone's in line as they're there and that nothing goes out of order. And when something happens, he snaps to and, and gets all flustered and, and, and angry. Text is clear that he's, why is he angry? He's angry, he's indignant. He's expressing intense displeasure because Jesus healed on the Sabbath. He's outraged that Jesus would do such a thing. Now, the Old Testament law that God gave to Israel through Moses, otherwise known as the Mosaic Law, stipulated that no work was to be done on the Sabbath. And in that sense, this man got that right. The fourth commandment out of the Ten Commandments says this. It says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh Day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who's within your gates. 
For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. It is clear from this commandment that they were not to do any work. But the, the rub came to figure out, well, what constitutes work? Can I sweep my patio? Is that work? Can I walk a long distance? Is that work? And so the rabbis came up with laws, extra laws, on top of the stipulated ones in the scriptures to define what work was. In fact, they had 39 forms of labor that were forbidden, but there were some forms that were permissible, such as leading cattle to water. And again, these were extra laws, not found in the Mosaic law, but they went beyond what was written. And so this leader of the synagogue, in his statement that he makes in verse 14, he is mixing truth with error. He rightly notes that there are six days that work ought to be done. Look at it, verse 14, he says, he says to the people, there are six days in which work ought to be done. That's true. He's quoting the scriptures there. But he wrongly believes that Jesus' healing constituted work and therefore broke the law of God. Jesus broke no law. He simply laid his hands on this woman and it was the power of God that healed her. Now notice what this man does. His beef is with who? It's with Jesus, right? But what does he do? He says to the people, Jesus has just healed this woman and then he turns to the crowd and, and, and he gives them a message. He says, listen, work is to be done on six days. Come on those days to be healed. He, he doesn't address Jesus specifically. It's almost as if he knows that if broken people come to Jesus, Jesus is going to heal them. That's not a question. That's not in doubt. And so instead of trying to command Jesus to do something, he commands the people that he thinks he has some sort of jurisdiction over and some sort of control. Listen, don't bring your needs to him now. Wait for tomorrow. But Jesus doesn't allow this man to make this sidestep. He says, no, 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 no. Your issue's with me. And my issue is with you. He confronts him directly. Verse 15. Then the Lord answered him, you hypocrites. This is in the second person plural. In other words, Jesus is not just addressing this one man. He's pluralizing it. He's speaking to all the Jewish leadership. There were no doubt scribes and Pharisees sitting there. And that earlier in Luke, we read of how they love the best seats in the synagogue. And so there, no doubt there are those sitting right in the front row. There are those great men that think that they're so holy that they're following God's law and they're sitting there smug and go, yeah, I'm glad the ruler of the synagogue said something to him because that's just outrageous. And so Jesus, rather than just addressing the ruler of the synagogue, turns to all of the religious leadership and says, you hypocrites, you're all guilty. Now I love how Luke subtly reminds us of Jesus' authority here. Because notice he doesn't just say, Jesus answered. What does it say? Look at verse, verse 15. Then the Lord answered him. Jesus, 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 the Lord. When the Lord speaks, when Yahweh, the God of heaven and earth speaks, you listen to him. Luke wants us to not miss that. Jesus calls them out. 
for their duplicity, for their hypocrisy. They each have no problem every day untying their donkey or their ox and leading it to water for the, the animal to get water for the day. This was the standard practice for the Jewish family. No doubt these people even did it that very morning. It's part of the morning chores. And the rabbis allowed it as part of the work that could be done on the Sabbath day. And so Jesus argues from the lesser to the greater, if you're okay with leading an animal to, to get help on the Sabbath day, then why are you not okay with this woman receiving even greater help? Physical and spiritual help. Freedom from Satan. Verse 16, ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? Now there's a word play here in verses 15 and 16 that often doesn't come through in the English translation. I appreciate the Legacy Standard Bible that translates the word the same way where the English Standard Version says untie his donkey. It's a simple word for loose. They loose their, their ox or their donkey. And then Jesus says in verse 16, this woman has been loosed. You do a loosing and I've done a loosing. Which one's the greater one and which one should be allowed on the Sabbath? Now, in his indictment of the religious establishment, Jesus reveals the even greater miracle that was performed earlier. Not only was this woman uh, healed physically, not only were cells and sinews of, of muscle and bone all put together so that she could actually stand up straight, but this woman was freed spiritually from the oppression of Satan. And this is the kind of healing that is totally appropriate on the Sabbath. Jesus says, on this day, this is good. It glorified God for a woman like this to be set free in this way. Folks, here's the point of these verses. These religious leaders had greater compassion on animals than they did on people. This is what Jesus is calling them out for. They cared more for their animal than they cared for this bent over woman. They happily provided for their donkey that morning, but wanted this woman to suffer another day. This sort of attitude is a, is a reversal of God's creation. God made mankind in his image, male and female, and therefore they bear his image that is different than all the other creatures upon this earth. God cares for us in a way that is unique and beyond how he cares for animals. Jesus made that clear just a chapter earlier in Luke 12, verse 7, where he said that we are of more value than the sparrows. And so on one side, just words here, speak of the cold-hearted indifference of these Jewish leaders. But on the flip side, what we cannot miss is the warm-hearted compassion of Jesus. They got it wrong, but Jesus got it right. Jesus cared deeply for this woman, which prompted him to action. We see this in this account. We see it all throughout his ministry that Jesus loved people. He cared for people. Just as Jesus did not turn away from this woman's malady, so he does not turn away from us in ours. As we come to him with all sorts of problems and fears and sins and weaknesses, Jesus moved towards us in compassion. Listen, friends, he's not disgusted by the mess that you've made of your life. He's not repulsed by the sins that you've committed. 
He's not irritated by the repetition of your failures or the foolishness of them. Jesus is moved by our brokenness to come towards us to help us. These stories should cause us to turn to Jesus, to run to him, because he brings comfort to our sadness. He forgives our sins. He can heal our broken heart. He can change us. And so let us not miss that Jesus is moved by our brokenness. But the fourth and final attribute of Jesus revealed in this text this morning is that Jesus is worthy of our worship. Jesus is worthy of our worship. Look at it in verse 17. It says, and he said these things, as he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame and all the people rejoiced at all the glorious things that were done by him. Notice the emphasis of all. It's stated three times in this verse. All the adversaries, all the people, and all the glorious things. But we read of two groups. The first group is the adversaries. These are a group of people that we've seen throughout this narrative who have, are opposed to Jesus. Now it says that they're put to shame. This does not mean that they suddenly realize their fault, they realize their error, and they were ashamed of it. It simply means that they realize they lost the argument. And they're going to gonna go for more ammo and try again. They thought they had the upper hand, but they did not, and they're temporarily shamed. But there's also, we recognize the stubbornness of the rebellion of Israel as they remain Jesus' adversaries. But the second group of people is all the others, those who rejoice at the glorious things that were done by him. This included this miracle as well as others. They saw what the religious establishment couldn't, that God was working through Jesus. And so they worshiped him. Friends, there are only two groups down through human history. There's no middle ground. There's no neutral ground. There's no gray area. Either you are with Jesus and believe in him and accept him and adopt him as your savior or you are in rejection and rebellion against him. You might think that you're indifferent to him. But friends, that remains an adversary of him because we must worship him. We must bow down to him. We must acknowledge that he is the God of this universe and deserves our worship. And one day, every knee will bow, as Paul says in Philippians 2. The question is uh, whether you're going to bow to him now and experience life with him eternally or whether you will reject him now and be forced to bow before him on that day before you're cast into hell forever. Will you worship him today? Will you bow the knee and submit to him today? We need to recognize the good news that Jesus came for his enemies. Jesus came to redeem adversaries. Jesus came to redeem sinners who have, were in rebellion against him. And in this we see the love of God. Church, we who know the love of Christ need to reflect upon all the ways that Jesus has transformed us. That we're not the same people today that we were last year, that we were 10 years ago. There has been change and transformation and healing. And that gives us hope that he's going to continue that process. And we give glory and praise to Jesus for all that he's done. And so in conclusion this morning, this story of this woman gives us a beautiful snapshot into the heart and the ministry of Christ. 
as he moves towards broken people. And I pray that this portrait of Christ would cause you to move towards him. Bow with me in a word of prayer. Our God in heaven, we thank you for this wonderful word. A reminder that Jesus does not turn away from us in our sin and brokenness, in our suffering and our shame, but that he moves towards us. That he has a heart of compassion for us. And I pray that you would cause each one of us here to move closer to Jesus, to cry out to him in our pain. I pray for those who are bearing the pain of suffering this morning, that they might see a gentle Savior who loves and cares for them. And may they go to him to find the healing and the cure that they need. And Father, may we all give praise to your Son for the work that he has done. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. I just say, if, there, if you're here this morning and you need to speak to someone about issues of your life and soul, if you need prayer, I would love to speak with you and show you uh, from the scriptures uh, how you might be encouraged and what the Lord has for you. So please come down after we dismiss. I'll be down front and love to talk with you. And now we're going to close out our service singing of our need to look to Christ. So let's stand together and remind ourselves to turn to Jesus.
you all to of our courtyard grill that we're taking place immediately afterward here and uh, guests if you have not come to one of our newcomers lunches that we've had or any such things please uh, take us up on our offer today for a free lunch you can simply take your connect corner connect card to the connect corner and we'll give you a voucher for that you're dismissed god bless you this week <laughs>